And now, the Rathband Tapes, Episode 1. The Night in Question. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to the Rathband Tapes. I'm Tony Horn in Lancashire, England, ghostwriter to the late PC David Rathband. In South Australia, his twin brother, Darren. Over the next few episodes, we'll revisit David's whole story and for the first time hear conversations David and I shared whilst writing his book, Tango 190, and which, to this point, nobody, including Darren, has ever heard. We won't cover everything, and some bits we'll visit briefly and return to later. None of this is going to be easy. You'll hear some stuff that'll cut through the noise around this case and lays the heart on the line. David, in his own words. So let's begin at the night in question. And that is a good place to start because the time, the timing and the time zones, as you'll discover are all fighting each other. It's 12.42 in the morning on the 4th of July, 2010. But is it? Welcome, Darren. What time was it there in Australia? My recollection, we got our first sort of no information something had happened probably about half, 20 past eight, in, in the, the morning, morning of the, it would have been the 4th of July here. I think at that time it was winter. The UK is nine hours behind South Australia. One of the reasons that I make an issue about the time is, and we will return to this, Northumbria Police had a north and south control room and it later transpired that the clocks were 15 minutes apart. But also, if you haven't understood this point Darren and David are twins I use the present tense there I think we'll slip between the past and the present according to the situation but for both of us uh, he's a person who's very much with us and I think we have a unique opportunity here to explore that twin dynamic so when I say the story begins at 12 42 and Darren references it being eight nine in the morning there are the days that lead up to this but also Darren tell me about that night time for you in South Australia so the day before in England talk to me about having that connection thousands of miles away and how you slept that night yeah during the day there was there was nothing that came to mind that made me feel uneasy, anything was different. Um, it was just a normal, probably sunny day here in Adelaide at that time. Didn't work at the weekend. Later on, I got a text message from David with a picture, which I think was even mentioned at the litigation, but he sent me a picture that, and he'd morphed his face to look different, and that was unusual. That was the first and only picture David ever sent me whilst he was at work. 
And I actually said at that time to Angie, that's weird. Oh, David sent me a funny picture. And prior to that night, when had you last heard from David? I think I probably spoke to David the week before. Um, we were planning on, he was planning on coming over for the, the Ashes. Uh, England played um, Australia here that year. And we put, he, he was going to come over with the family. And we were going to go to cricket. And that would have been his first visit to Australia. But you did hear from him on the night in question, which was unusual yeah, when he was working. It, it was really, because um, I, I, I remember getting a picture uh, on my mobile phone um, from David, and it was obviously a picture at work or whilst he was at work. I wasn't sure if it was at that particular time. And it was one of those through those um, filter apps on your iPhone. And it was a picture of David, and he sort of morphed his face into look rather larger than it should do. Um, looked like it. The fat my face out. Yeah, something like that. Um, I, I, I didn't have it, Tony, so I'm not sure, but it looked like he'd had more donuts than a policeman <laughs> should have done. And being a traffic cop, you'd expect him to put a bit of weight on. But there was something unusual, because ne- I'd never had a photo of David doing any police work, Although he was, he loved being a cop. He, we weren't the type of people to send policey pictures. Uh, and I said to my partner Angie, at the time, I said, "Yeah, that's weird. Why, why has he sent me a picture of him being all fat faced, like swollen faced, which is quite ironic when you look at what happened to him." And I would add, and we mentioned his name for the first time, as Raoul Moat was released from prison on the 1st of July the images that circulated of Moat were of quite a fat face but the reality was that this former bodybuilder bouncer gardener and that is relevant we will come to that had lost a lot of weight so the initial images that were circulated by Northumbria police betrayed the person who was to go on the rampage but they did show that fat uh, face that we know to associate with moat in terms of the twin telepathy between you and david was that it on that night that it just triggered that it was odd that he would see would send you a photo whilst on duty or did it linger? What, what's weird, Tony, is growing up as identical twins, we did have occasions where I broke my arm and David knew I broke my arm and he, he got injured playing out and I was all sort of distressed at home and asked mum where David was and then he walked in with um, an iron bar that was sticking through his shoulders. We'd been conquering and, and it'd come out the tree and nearly stuck in his head. It actually went through his shoulder blade. So we did have that. We had that good of a connection growing up as children and twins, but he, things I did, he thought he'd done. And we used to have we used to have arguments about who got run over three times in the same place. And we both <laughs> thought it was us, and we would have swore blue that it was us. And, and different stories growing up. But what was, what was unique about that was the fact that it was that unusual for David to make contact with a picture from work that it set... It set something, I don't know if it was 
prepping it, uneasy. It was like an intuition, but there was nothing there to, to see that was happening or going to happen. It's like, you know, the, the scary music you, you hear on a, on a horror film and you say to yourself, why are they going in there? Well, we didn't have that music, but that, that's the sort of preempt that it was. And then later on in the evening, I just didn't feel right. I didn't settle, couldn't, and I didn't know what it was. I just didn't feel comfortable at ease like I normally do. Well, that evening, of course, changed everything for David, yourself, his family. But as I alluded to in the introduction, we do have to turn that clock back. And where does this story start? Does it start hours before in Burtley, which is a town not far from the Angel of the North, just aside the A1, heading into Newcastle. Does it start on the 1st of July, when Round Moat is released from prison? Does it start in prison, where Northumbria Police, at the time, back in 2010, actually admitted that Moat had said before his release that he was going to harm his ex-girlfriend. His ex-girlfriend, Samantha Stobart, who, if we follow the narrative, had suggested that she was now dating a policeman in a view, I think, that that would protect her. She was actually dating Chris Brown, who had moved to the area just a few months before. But there's also another place where this story starts and it goes back to Raumote's hatred of the police. He'd been arrested several times. I believe this is the first time that he was inside. A short sentence. But one of the mistakes that people make when they talk about this case is... They often refer to Raoul Moat, a man David Rathband had never met. And that's not true. Raoul Moat had a gardening business, the demise of which he blamed the police for. Operation Absolute was... looking at scrap metal theft in the northeast and Northumbria police were trying to find people who were stealing from the Tyne and Weir Metro etc etc flogging off metal and one day I think Darren this is 12 to 18 months before I may be wrong but Moat's driving down the A1 with all this stuff in the back that he tried to conceal and David pulls him over and arrests him and David told me that there were only two characters that he'd ever met that he took home at the end of the day he was able to close the door mentally on the shift work and one of those people had been moat so the story begins some way back at all of those trigger points really doesn't it but before we come to the night in question for David we really have to look at what happened 
to Chris Brown because, and I'm sure you'll back this up when I ask you about the media portrayal of the events. Safe to say in Australia, nobody was covering the murder of Chris Brown, were they? No, I don't know. To be honest, Tony, I don't even think the press in the northeast or England were covering it. They, I think my understanding is there was a press embargo and nothing was released for a, quite a substantial period of time. We didn't know what had, the, the finer details had happened. The only, obviously, the only way we found out was we got a, a phone call from Kath early morning. Angie picked the phone up. I had I'd slept terrible. I'd woke up at 20 past four, cold sweats, woke Angie up, said, I don't feel very well. Managed to get back off and then sort of tossed and turned. Angie picked this phone call up. Uh, it was obviously Kath making contact with us. Um, I didn't know who was on the phone. And then I heard this, and I'll never forget the sound of a distressed scream coming from an area that shouldn't have any fear or danger for anybody. This 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 horrible scream that I still remember now, Tony. If she does it, if she sees a, a creepy crawly or a spider or a snake in the garden, she's got this distinctive scream that you know something's happening. That and I just got out, but jumped out of bed, ran to our office, and she said, "David's been hurt. David's been hurt." And that was the first thing we'd heard. And that was about, like I said, early morning, maybe between twenty past eight, nine o'clock, nine twenty. So, Kath is Kath Rathbone, David's wife. Angie is Darren's partner. And you're absolutely correct. We have to deal with every human as a human being, but it is, I believe, accurate to say that Chris Brown's name, well, quite forgotten in all of this, but would not have made the news if it weren't for what followed. And I suppose there is some anger, intensity, distress to see and hear a British policeman gunned down on their own streets. Clearly, if we were in America, it's not as unusual. But it is unusual, and gun crime, particularly in the Northeast, a rarity and here we have two incidents within a very short period of time i do recall david saying to me when the trial of Ralmo's accomplices took place david explained to me how he just felt that all these trains were lining up and on a collision course and this is the lottery of life of course that i know david was very warm to Chris Brown's mother in particular. But these are two people who this awful circumstance has has thrown together in a way that they never, ever would have. And obviously, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about reflects thoughts that individuals had at the time, and some of it reflects thoughts that people have had over time, particularly after the trial. So when David goes to work on that Saturday afternoon. It's his daughter Mia's 12th birthday. David had played golf in the morning. 
He changed his shift, which is a detail that people need to know because he shouldn't have been at work. But he went because, in his own words, his house was going to be full of teenage girls. The first he knew about Chris Brown, because David had been attending a, uh, a hearing for a road traffic accident in his role as a family liaison officer the, the day before, his neighbour spoke to him as he was on his way to work and mentioned something about that shooting last night. So everything that David learned about Chris Brown follows his own shooting. And we do know quite a lot about it. And I know from the language that David used that it had a massive impact on him not on the night in question because he was largely unaware but david used to refer to chris's shooting as an assassination which is a word that we think of for dignitaries really isn't it he was shot in the left throat area along his chest and he was shot in the back of the head the two that shot him in the leg and in the neck were single shot shotgun cartridges which were obviously modified he was then shot in the back of the head with an unmodified cartridge i think one thing i'd say there is you can hear the the detail that david expresses as a policeman we will talk regularly i think about the fact that certainly for his own slaying david was a policeman a witness and a victim. I didn't really understand all that stuff about the shotgun, but there's a little bit more here. I might be wrong, but I think he picked the wrong cartridge for Sam Stobbard, and he picked the wrong ones for me as well. Yeah, yeah, that's the first time I've heard David explain that, and for somebody that's gone through that experience, be it victim or policeman or both, um, the, like I say, how articulate and precise he can recant that is, um, I wouldn't like to use inspiring, but it's certainly something worth listening to. And I can tell you for a, for a fact what he will be doing is not only telling you about those particular cartridges, he'll be reliving that moment second by second until he sees a flash in front of his face. So he's reliving that as he's thinking about being articulate about the, the cartridge. And what, what he is trying to explain that with, and I understand that maybe a little bit better than some people. Over in Australia and in England, we, we, we still do, in England I'm not sure that we, we discharge, dispatch euthanized kangaroo with, or used to, with a shotgun, with what's called a slug coat, which is like David said, it's a large ball of lead in a shell cartridge, and it's designed to actually kill something rather than, uh, if it, the spread is wide and at a distance, injure and disable somebody. So that's that's what he's basically trying to say. Firearms teams in England still, I think, have uh, or used to have the capability of a sword pellet for cows and bulls. So that's what the example. I'll leave the next bit to to David because there's there's a conclusion that you can draw from what we learn there. And I will say at this point that the audio that we're listening to here has been in a safe for 
10 years. Some of the audio is too heartbreaking. Some of it has eye-catching detail like that that makes you extremely proud. But David was right with what he said next. I, I asked the question today as to how on earth he's found out to do what he's done. And that, when he says today, that is much later in the sequence of events. But it's... You see, you understand, Darren, a little bit about shotgun. I don't understand it. And there's David. How has he learned how to do that? And then when I said earlier, where does this story begin at various points? David used to use the phrase to me that when he was in prison, he ordered the weapon. So he was able, on a phone given to him to order that shotgun, that modified shotgun, and he told wardens that he was intent on hurting... Yeah, correctional services, Hagen Prison Service, that managed um, this uh, individual, and I, I do struggle mentioning his name because I just think he's a low-life thief scum who was in prison, I believe, for assaulting his young child. So let's let's put that into context. He was actually convicted of beating a child. He's also got a history of domestic violence. And now, as you say, quite rightly, he's in prison that monitors calls, phone calls and visits. And he does a telephone order for a shotgun. The correctional services knew that and passed that on to Northumbria Police. Northumbria Police my understanding is, said, we've got no concern. And of course, there's a little bit of a part two there, and that is that when you've ordered the weapon, you need a vehicle. And this, as we will explain over subsequent episodes, brings Carl Ness and Cora Wan to the table. You may have a subsequent question to how do you know how to do this? And that might be, why would he go to such trouble? Um, David found out in court, I believe, for the first time about this modification. And this was his conclusion. My belief is that he, he was calculating for Chris Brown. He picked the right ones, he did the two that did the damage, and then shot him in the back of the head with one he'd got left. And I think... If he didn't want to kill her, then he's picked the wrong ammunition to do it with. And I think he's got mixed up and used the ones that he got for the next victim, i.e. the police officer, if he found one, mixed up in a batch where he should have used them on Sam and shot her through the window and caused very little damage. I know David expressed to me that he wanted to kill Chris Brown and injure only Sam Stobart. That is his opinion. What he did say was the fact that the, he, the, if the ammunition hadn't been modified, he probably would have still been in the same situation due to the buckshot, small pellets that are discharged going through the side window of the, his patrol vehicle. The, the, the public may assume that police cars are bulletproof, I can guarantee you, all they had on that window was a film for uh, sun protection, and that would have been the normal glass tint. 
So there's no there's no firearms protection, certainly long distance or short distance. Um, he was aware that it'd been modified, and I think we've got to ask the question, Tony. If <clears throat> if you've got or gone out your way to order a firearm, you then either assume or order the bullets, unless you unless you want to do something different to what a normal shotgun cartridge would do. There is no reason why you have in your possession with that firearm modified cartridges unless you want to change the outcome. So I think David's right. David was clearly right that those modified cartridges were either made for a particular reason and they did what he, the, the gunman wanted them to do or David is saying that he may have got sort of mistaken with what round or cartridge to use. But they were certainly modified for a purpose. Now, we're recording in 2023, and we need to remember, you know, what life was like in 2010. I referenced that because one of the forgotten details that adds to this conversation about ordering from inside Durham Prison is that Moat actually had announced almost his intentions on his Facebook profile page. And if you consider how colossal social media is now, Facebook, I believe, arrived in 2004. It was nowhere near the enormity that it is now. I think Moat wrote something like, watch this space. People write a lot of things on social media and often that kind of stance that he took is only relevant when you piece the case backwards. At the time, you would probably have taken no notice of it, but it's not quite in the same league as what you intimated, reader correctional services. Let's, let's sort of take it down to the, what it really is. HM Prison did the right thing. They advised Northumbria Police of a critical and potential risk to one of their officers or even members of the public. I clearly will say Northumbria Police dropped that ball because whilst he's in prison, HM Prison Service are responsible for the management and rehabilitation of Mr Moat. When he gets out, the risk to the public or anybody else becomes another agency's problem. Northumbria Police didn't think it was a problem, so they didn't deal with it. The 3rd of July, the early hours, Burtley, County Durham, it begins, I think it's fair to say, as a result of some of the stuff that we've outlined to you there. And with a waiting car, Moat, I believe, perches under the window of Sam Stobart's house or the house where she was that evening. I think it goes on for some time. There is an altercation, I think. And then Chris Brown is assassinated, executed. Terrible, terrible language, but that's not being disrespectful to Chris to use those words. It represents the atrocity that was committed. And Darren, we should say, if you're unaware, has also had a career in the police. And 
one of the things that I'm sure will strike you about crime is the action itself, but also the premeditation that is involved on many, many occasions. And that's why execution, assassination, I think are the correct language. This was premeditated. Let's face it, if they're in prison, I'm sure they're monitored. I know they get PlayStations and people believe they play pitch and put golf around the, the prison, play football, weight train, and do all the social things that we have to pay for in, in, in normal day-to-day. But surely, to, and it was planned, because he's ordered a gun, he's told people what he's going to do. He then comes out, gets picked up, goes and collects it. Doesn't anybody notice this behaviour in prison and then put that in line with the intelligence report to Northumbria Police saying it clearly looks like a creditable comment. He's behaving in this sort of way. Surely there's got to be more to being in prison than just being left to order a firearm and two, two people to drive you around the North East shooting anybody and everybody. Chris Brown dies instantly. Sam Stobart is taken to hospital for surgery. And I believe under armed guard. And here we are then on the 4th of July... 2010 what's the first thing that david does when he gets to work having none of this on his radar as we've explained he goes to look up the time when he'd arrested moat before and he found that there was nfa no further action and david was particularly troubled by by that moment because the A1, as it drives through the northeast, is largely a dual carriageway. It's quite tight, or it certainly was then. There's a lot of traffic. If you are carrying scrap metal on the back and it falls off, think of the consequence that that can have. We're talking about driving past the metro centre, one of the busiest shopping places in the country. Imagine, too, if that vehicle's not insured to carry that scrap metal. Remember that David was a family liaison officer, and he'd seen at first hand how families were broken by traffic accidents caused for all sorts of reasons. So that's why he was downbeat, to say the least, that Moat had got away with that. When he looks him up on the computer, I think... It's worth remembering the thought that David had after that arrest and subsequent release. And David used to use this phrase, he'll come again, he'll come again. And that, of course, turned out to be correct. I know that on that evening, David did have a text from a a colleague of his along the lines of, you've seen who they're looking for for that incident last night. The colleague had been with David when they arrested him the first time. So at this point, late afternoon, it's, I think, a live situation for David. Even though, of course, really it's been a live situation since Chris Brown is killed. There's one other element that is a sort of background detail to this, and that is that just a few weeks before, 
Derek Bird had gone on the rampage in Carlisle. So, alone in his vehicle, Carlisle, previous, not the first of the failings on that night, but that really sets the scene. My understanding is that was a national policy due to staffing levels that um, for services forces could certainly or were asked to adapt, adopt that uh, policy by the police federation and unfortunately various chief constables interpreted it different and it wasn't enforced by anybody there's no, there's no penalty for going out single street i think what happened is david went in and david just carried on work there was nobody where are you going to get a, another police officer to come and sit in a traffic patrol when you you're running and david wouldn't have been the only single crew car out Tony. I've, I've been in this job long enough so on that night a Saturday night in Newcastle in the middle of summer. There's a Football World Cup on in South Africa. David didn't have a lot to do. He said he followed one guy up a slip road that he thought might be a drink driver, but he said it was a pretty uneventful evening, which is probably the reason that he was able to send you that that text. Yeah, it's ironic. You look at that now and see that was the last picture of your brother, identical twin, um, that didn't look like me then in that picture. And then after this incident, he didn't look like me then. What I will say to Tony, um, when David joined the police force, uh, we nicknamed him Malcolm, and that was a, a bit of a running joke between me, me mainly and him. The fact that Mal, we always said Malcolm always gets his man from the Canadian Mountain. Um, he 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 loved being a policeman. David uh, w- wouldn't think twice of doing something off duty because it was the right thing to do, and and he did on occasions. He locked somebody up for possession of cannabis, and he'd never dealt with anybody. This is when he first joined the job. Locked him up, rang the local police, which was Staffordshire, not Northumbria. He didn't actually know how to formulate a statement for possession of cannabis. So he'd done at this lock-up, thought he was brilliant, came back to my house, told me, and then asked me to help him, work, not word his statement, but certainly tell him what he should be putting in it to, to cover the fact that he'd seen him, saw him, and, and locked this kid up. Uh, and I just I, I laughed at him and said, next time, make sure you know what you're doing. Uh, so, yeah, that, that nickname stuck with our David, and it doesn't, doesn't surprise me that he acted on trying to stop that individual doing any other damage. If you are aware of the timeline of the events, you'll realise that there's almost only one thing we will be discussing next. So that's to come. Plus, there's plenty more from frustrations david had with his colleagues to sadly in private conversations with me predicting his own demise there's 15 minutes of fame with blunkett may and cameron there's the trial in which we'll revisit the themes of david the police officer david the victim david the witness I spoke with David every night of the trial. I witnessed his emotions waver from absolute confidence in the police evidence to 
the fear that there might be what he called a low baller some sort of wild card somebody in the jury that was thinking slightly different so that's all to come plus there are the nightmares that he had and rarely discussed when everybody talks about this manhunt nobody ever has spoken about what it was like dealing with the new physical reality that david had lost his eyesight so we'll get into now before we go to the moment it's early morning in south australia you've just received that phone call what do you do next certainly when when you live that far away even if you lived in the same same country you i try I, to be honest earlier i tried to find out what had happened where's the best place to look for information obviously i then went and logged onto the computer did some internet searches i i couldn't find i, I couldn't find anything there was absolutely nothing on that computer search history that pointed me towards one and i used every search um perimeter you could use northeast shooting northeast police rap band you, you name it I, I, nothing and nothing came up and i sat there, sat there and said to angie angie i can't find anything i don't know what's going on and she says well it's happened kath's told me I said, well it, it can't have, it can't have happened and I, I i must tony i must have spent probably two two hours at least two hours searching over and over again try this search try that search do it again do it again nothing came up and then all of a sudden something came up in regards to the shooting of chris brown that was the first thing that came up and then there was another story about pc Rathbun. but there's no detail about david there was very limited detail and i went he's he's been he's been hurt And I'm glad you mentioned that because there's an early inkling there from Darren as to the role of the press and the media in particularly the week that followed. We'll discuss that in time. When you got that phone call from England, what did you understand to be David's condition? Um, we know he was shot, yeah. but what does that mean? I was, uh, uh, to be honest, I wasn't party of that conversation that Kath had with, with Angie. That only lasted a very short period of time, so there, were, there was certainly no great depth put into the detail. All I got was, he's been injured, he's been shot, he's alive, he's going to survive, but he's seriously injured. And that was it. I didn't get told where he'd been shot, how many times he'd been shot. I was, I was just told... He was gonna. He was going to survive. So then you sit there and go, "Yeah, well done, David. What a what a top guy. You you took a bullet and survived. Because let's face it, if you get shot, how many people can say I survived? Looking back now, do you believe that you were told he would survive because that was the truth, or because that was the best thing to tell his twin half a world away? Because I know about those injuries and we're going to unravel the sequence of events very shortly. 
I think it's fair to say he survived against the odds. Uh, yeah, I think if, if you look at the the later medical um, report and what the what the specialist surgeon said, yeah, you're, you're probably right. Every, anybody else would have died in that police car in the footwell. Um, what I would probably add to that, Tony, is that I was told to get home as soon as possible. So that gives an element of need um, and urgency. If and I suppose you could put it into context. If you, yes, you can be injured and you're going to be all right. Just get home when you can. But usually, when you're told you need to, you need to get home as soon as you can. But yeah, there was an element of yeah, hold on a minute. There's something's not not sitting right here. Yes, you've been shot. Yes, he's going to survive. Hold on, he's been shot. So and and then you you go through all the emotions of I'm 24 hours away. How the how the hell do I get back from sleepy Adelaide to a hustle and bustle of the northeast that I've only ever visited for the odd weekend? It's going to be a massive story. And let's just expand on that slightly. Darren's probably 45 minutes out of Adelaide. If you've ever been to Australia, getting out of Adelaide probably means, what, six hours to Asia and then 12, perhaps, to the UK, then a domestic flight to Newcastle. Yeah, that's probably one of the most direct. You might even have to fly internally in Australia first. There's that, and it's just... Look, we were lucky as well, Tony. We, 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 we were both working, police officer, Angie, my partner, as a paramedic, both get paid uh, really well for difficult jobs. We don't get given it for doing nothing. And we were able to book the emergency flights. On, I think I think it was on the, the, I'm not sure if it was the same day we flew back on the Sunday. We sh- I certainly, we, we paid we paid out the nose and we I did what I had to get home as soon as I could. So there's one element there which... Again, I think it's one of the reasons why we want to have these conversations. You're in a you're in uncharted waters. You leave Australia scrapping around for bits of knowledge. You have to make that journey which is arduous and long. It's impossible to settle on a flight like that. It's impossible to know what you are landing to. It is impossible to not make that journey and have every single scenario going through your head. Yeah, you're right. And what what you can't do, you actually, once you're on that roller coaster, you can't get off and stop it. So you go, there's no sort of, hold on, I feel sick. Um, I want to cry. You just have to go where every, every feeling and emotion tells you. And what you've got to obviously remember as well, Tony, there is a press embargo. I don't know how long that lasts for. Certainly a few hours in the morning of the 4th of July. That must have changed because as we're now coming into UK airspace on this flight, there is a national paper right-hand side of me a woman reading I'm sure it was the sun I'm sure it was and there is a picture and I've not seen David I haven't seen what's happened to him and there is a picture I'm sure that it was a picture of my my brother with his face blasted off on the front page of this paper just to explain that that is clearly possible because when you boarded there's no information but after those multiple legs and then coming in the last bit you're in 
English airspace. So much time has passed that it is now a live story. And I hate the word story because this is real life. At least 24 hours that we've took to certainly get near to the UK. But yeah, she was, she was sat on my right side reading it and I happened to look over. I, just, I said, I elbowed Angie and said, Angie, Angie, it's David. And we, I just sat there, gobsmacked. That, that's the first time I, I became aware of what, what my brother was facing on a, on a jumbo jet, 30,000 up in the sky, reading the paper. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't even my paper. I didn't even pay, pay the money to have the benefit of chucking it in the bin. By lunchtime, South Australia time, the following day, you're coming home. As soon as I heard that, that, he's been shot you need to get home I was I was already on the plane it was just a matter of that plane wasn't on the actual runway so then you have to wait for the opportunity to get home but I was I was already there bags were packed flight was paid for booked and I was on my way I was going to be there for David next time we'll address this issue of what happened at 12.42 next time on the Rathband tapes. Val Moat had said after he'd shot me that he'd gone back into the car and told them that he'd shot me in the, in the head, in the face. He t- then told them that I'd, I'd put another one into the back of his head. With thanks to series consultant Rob Jones, this is a Horny Media and Publishing Production.